to the Faith Cuff Podcast. Join us as we continue our Chasing the Wind series, a study on futility and fulfillment in Ecclesiastes. Good morning. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to add my welcome to you both here on campus and if you're joining us at home or online. Uh, we're glad you're with us. I'm excited. We're starting a new series this morning uh, on the book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling it Chasing the Wind, and we're going to be doing a deep dive into the book of Ecclesiastes as a study on futility and fulfillment in life. And uh, if you were with us in our last series, Know Your Why, you know we introduced this as an experiment. We're going to do it in a little bit different way because we want to do a deeper dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to break it up into different modules, and uh, we're going to do five weeks now leading up to Thanksgiving. Then we're going to take a break for the holidays, and we'll have a series on Advent and Christmas. Then in the new year, we'll come back and we'll do another module in Ecclesiastes. And if we need to come back and do another module in the later spring, we'll do that. So we're going to just take our time to work through through this book in a very intentional way. And in some ways, we're kind of saying that this Know Your Why series that God is inviting us to explore together isn't just a one and done, but it's, it's kind of our theme for the year. Why do we exist as a church? Why, why do you exist as, as God has created and called you? And, and what is the, the purpose and the meaning for the life that we've get, been given? And so the Ecclesiastes message ties right into some of those deeper questions that we're asking. Do you ever feel like your hopes and your dreams are just a little bit out of reach? And maybe not just your big dreams for life, right? Maybe it's also your small hopes for today or for this week. Ah, really wish I could get that laundry done this week, right? Is that a hope that some of us have? I think so, right? I really hope that we can afford to pay that bill this month. I really hope that we can work through this conflict that's going on in our relationship right now. I really hope that the doctor doesn't give me bad news. Do you wish your life was better, different, more than it is today? Do you ever struggle to find satisfaction and contentment in your day-to-day living, always feeling like there's more to do or more to achieve or something more to pursue before you can finally arrive at whatever destination that you're heading for? And, And how will you know when you arrive? These are good questions and challenging questions, and often we don't take the time to think about them or to ponder them, and it might just be possible, I want to suggest for us this morning as we enter into the book of Ecclesiastes, that there might just be a fatal flaw in your thinking and in my thinking. There might be a glitch in the system that continues to undermine your your highest hopes and your best laid plans, leaving you feeling weary and worn out and disappointed. Again, anybody ever feel weary or worn out? Disappointed? I know I do. So I want to invite you to join us as we explore this ancient wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes as a study in the futility and the fulfillment in living. Is there any real meaning to life? Is there anything of lasting value or worth? What is it that we can can or are supposed to get out of life? Or is it all just an illusion? Is it a, a cruel joke? Is it like trying to capture the wind? 
So you will be challenged in your thinking, but also encouraged to discover new ways of living each day that may just lead you to a new experience of genuine fulfillment in this life and the next. Ecclesiastes begins in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now today we're just introducing the series, and so we're just going to look at a couple of the introductory verses and get a feel for what this book is and where we're going to be heading and, and what, does it, what does it mean in the context of the larger Bible. Uh, the title Ecclesiastes itself, before we just run past it, it's kind of a weird word, right? It's actually a Greek word, so it, it doesn't really jump out to us in English. What, what is it? Well, it's actually the title of the speaker in the book. If we get into the book, we'll recognize that there's one who is the writer or the author, and the, the author has captured the words of a speaker named Ecclesiastes, or that's actually a title. In, it's in Greek, but it translates the Hebrew word Kohelet, and Kohelet is based on the root word Kahal, and Kahal is a gathering of people. And Kahal was often used in the Old Testament for the people of Israel when they were gathered for war. Or when they called together to listen to the word of the Lord and to gather for worship. And in Greek, it's translated ecclesia. And if you've heard that word before, it's the same word we use for congregation and for church. And so many people will translate Kohelet as the teacher or the preacher because he's the, the one who gathers people for worship or, or, or for learning. And in the Hebrew culture, this was a part of their life. As is true as much of ancient wisdom literature, we don't actually know who the real author is. There's this uh, person who's capturing the words of Kohelet and sharing them with us as wisdom that we are supposed to be paying attention to. Authorship of the book is traditionally given to Solomon, right? Uh, the, people assume that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes because Solomon is attributed to Proverbs and to Song of Songs, and he was the wise king, and he was given more wisdom than anyone else before in the history of the world. And though Solomon is never actually named in the book of Ecclesiastes like he is in Proverbs and in Song of Songs, like Solomon, it says in verse 1 that he is a son of David, king in Jerusalem. And that's what leads us to think of Solomon, because he was David's son. But that was also a term given to any additional king that came in the line of David. And it was also attributed to kind of the people of Israel as well. And in wisdom literature, if you were a rabbi or a teacher, you had uh, pupils or students, they were considered your sons. It was a very male-oriented culture, right? Sons or daughters, if you were a student, if you were a disciple, you were considered the, the son of the rabbi. And so Solomon's reign is almost certainly evoked in numerous places as you go throughout the book. And it connects especially to the account of Solomon's life in 1 Kings 3 through 11, if anyone wants to go back and read the story of Solomon. But there's also good reason, scholars suggest, to believe that Solomon himself isn't the author. It seems evident from multiple verses that the real historical location that the speaker is speaking from actually happens because of the Hebrew language after the period of exile when the people were taken into Babylon for, in exile. The very uh, word, uh, words in the verses imply numerous predecessors right, to uh, the throne in Jerusalem, whereas Solomon was the first son of David, right? He was the first king after him. 
And so it's not likely that Solomon would also tell us that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem in the past because he would assume to be writing during his reign. And many of the later passages appear to be written from the perspective, not of a ruler, but of a subject in the kingdom. And so the language of the book and the type of Hebrew used itself all appears to come from a later period when Solomon, then when Solomon was king, and suggests that it was most likely written uh, in the earlier or later than the 6th century BC before Christ. And the exile happened in the 7th century before Christ, and David and Solomon lived even earlier than that. But we have to keep in mind that this is an ancient book. And when we come to ancient books, we can't approach them like we do modern books, right? In modern times, we like to attach our name to everything, right? We want to get credit for writing it. In fact, we want to have the intellectual property right so that we can profit from the intellectual property that we have produced. We would never imagine writing something and putting somebody else's name on it or not even being known who the author was, right? But that's how they did it in those days, Right? It wasn't about who the author was, it was about the words and the content that they were writing that they wanted you to consider. And so often, ancient writers would take the name of a, of a famous person or a well-known person and attach it to the writing so that it would garner attraction and interest for people who knew that person. Does that make sense? So scholars suggest that it seems most likely that the speaker in the book is taking on the persona of Solomon. Right? They're thinking of Solomon as the character who depicts the very lifestyle that they're trying to talk about and would like us to consider the life of Solomon as we're thinking through the words that they're sharing with us. Because if we think about it, Solomon is the perfect example to facilitate the exploration of life under the sun that the author is going to walk us through. It would require the experiences that Solomon would undertake to, of great wealth and great power and wisdom and, of course, free time to build gardens and have construction projects and to do all the things that the book will talk about. And we'll walk through all of those. And after all, even more importantly, Solomon is the perfect example of a man who knew God, but in his later years lost sight of God. Right? His eyes got fixed on this side of eternity, on life under the sun. And Solomon was the king of Israel at the height of its power, and God granted him wisdom and wealth and all of this uh, uh, stuff that he had, but we learned that there's no one so foolish as the one who has wisdom and yet fails to live by it. Right? That was Solomon. Solomon knew God, but let wine and women and pleasure and power distract him from his life with God. He didn't so much walk away from God as he just kind of drifted. His eyes and his heart got caught up in the other things in the world and allowed them to take the lead in his life. The author then takes on the character of Solomon in order to persuade his readers and us today of the truths about the world to con that confront those who are wealthy and powerful and wise, someone exactly like Solomon and maybe like you and me today as well. And so all of this points us to understand that what is most important that the author wants us to pay attention to is not who the author is, but what the argument is, what the words are, what the truths are that the author wants us to be able to see. And so we're invited to consider the very practical case study of life that he encourages us to consider and think through along with him. And so we begin our search for answers along with the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes by asking the right questions. 
What is the purpose of life anyways? And we jump into verse 2, and immediately Kohelet starts by giving us the answer. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Wait a minute. Isn't this the Bible? What do you mean everything's meaningless? How could this be the answer to life? The NIV commentary suggests that the translation here using the word meaningless is actually not helpful for us. And that understanding the, the root word in the Hebrew, again, gives us a fuller understanding of what the author was probably really trying to lead us into. And in the Hebrew, the word here is hebel. And the hebel describes something that is like a breath or a breeze. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's ephemeral. You, you can't really grasp it. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Literally, it says everything is breath. And it's used similarly in Isaiah 57. We can read beginning in verse 13. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. See, the emphasis here in Ecclesiastes is on the passing nature of human existence. Life is fleeting. It's a mere breath. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And it emphasizes how elusive happiness and joy and fulfillment can be when our eyes are focused on the wrong things, that life resists all attempts at intellectual and physical manipulation and control. A more literal translation, one scholar suggests, is the merest of breaths, says Kohelet. The merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. That's the word that Koheleth uses to describe your life and mine. It's just a breath, and then it's over. So we read the answer first, but the question comes right after in verse 3. And the key to understanding the whole book of Ecclesiastes is found in the questions of verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. See, Ecclesiastes is asking the question, is what do you get out of life? What do you expect out of life? What are you hoping for? What do you think that through your own wisdom, through your own wealth, through your own power, through seeking your own pleasure, you can gain that you can take with you that will last? And these are the two phrases that are going to be essential for making out the sense of what the Koheleth is trying to lead us to. What do people gain in life? And the other part is under the sun. And he'll say that over and over again, under the sun. What profit can you find from living? What do you keep at the end of life that you didn't start with? When he talks about life under the sun, he's not looking at life in the eternal sense. Heaven and hell don't factor into his argument here. He doesn't say that there is no heaven or hell, but for the sake of his case study and so that we might see life under the sun for what it is, the teacher is examining life here on earth. Now, we have to understand that this is also a very unusual book in in the larger context of Scripture. Because it doesn't really refer to the larger story of God's redemptive purposes and the story of God's people and and all of those things. Instead, we find ourselves seemingly reading about the meaninglessness or the vanity or the emptiness of life. 
and the certainty of death at the end in a universe where God is certainly present, but at best he seems distant or somewhat uninvolved. Does that ever feel like the life that you're living? But that's why. And with every other book in the Bible that we would study, we need to be able to understand it within the larger context of Scripture. That no book stands alone to give us the full meaning and understanding of what God has communicated to us through His Word. It points us to a greater understanding of God's Word, though, if we understand how it fits in the larger context. So the invitation and the challenge to each of us in the book of Ecclesiastes is to come together, to gather around and listen to the words of Kohelet, to listen to the teacher, to listen to some translations say the preacher, with openness in our hearts to to see truth in a new way, to learn wisdom and to allow ourselves to be changed and transformed by that truth as a result. And in this, Kohelet will tell us that the main obstacle to living well in this world is that human beings consistently refuse to accept their mortality and the futility of their own power. The Bible as a whole sets the entirety of human existence as we know it within the context of such a failed human attempt to become like God. You guys know the story of creation, right? In Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Oh, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable to gain wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized, we're naked. (laughs) So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, it's against this backdrop of the larger biblical story that Kohelet speaks into our own lives, seeking to persuade us that the futility of this ongoing human quest to become the gods of our own lives is destined to futility and failure and disappointment. And yet we keep trying over and over again to somehow gain control and to be the masters of our own destinies. We have to learn, Kohelet will tell us, to accept the universe in which we live beyond our human comprehension and our ability to manipulate and control. There is a meaning and a value to life that we can discover if we put our eyes on the right prize. Everything that we pursue to get us a leg up, to get ahead in the game, to buy us more time or more happiness or more fulfillment, whether it's through wealth or wisdom and knowledge or power or seeking pleasure and all of the things that we've all tried ultimately leaves us dissatisfied and disappointed because none of it actually leads to fulfillment and joy in living. 
And then overshadowing all of this in human existence is this ultimate reality that each one of us has to face directly, head on, face to face, that confirms for us ultimately our own inability to overcome the limits that God has set for our lives and that is we all die. At the end, we all go to the same place. The wealthy person has no advantage over the poor person. The smart person has no advantage over the dumb person. The person who pursued pleasure has no advantage over the person who diligently pursued doing all the right things. We all go to the same place. Death. Life is a breath, and then you die. How easy is it for us to take our eyes off of the reality of the life we live in, to live in fear, running after all these things that we think are going to bring happiness and satisfaction, all the while pretending that, that this destiny that we all face isn't out there. Above everything, death itself mocks our human attempts to godlikeness in our own lives. Death brings the wise person and the fool in the end to the same place and renders futile a life devoted to the accumulation of wealth or power or pleasure or any other thing for their own sakes. And so the author himself, in concluding the book, will set the whole of Kohelet's teaching in the context of reverence and obedience to the God who made us and the God who created the world in which we live, who has created a moral universe in which there is meaning and there is value and there is accountability for our actions. either implicitly or explicitly stated throughout, there are going to be two ways of living, two paths that we can choose. And so similar to all the biblical wisdom literature, we have a choice to make. And so the encouragement is going to be to focus on living each moment of each day in joyful life before the God who knows you and created you and loves you just the way you are rather than on the pursuit of anything else under the sun that you think is going to make you happier or have a better life than what God has already offered you. All of which, he says, we'll see amounts to nothing more than a chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to grab the wind? Try it right now. <laughs> it's kind of tough, right? In verse 14 of chapter 1, He'll tell us, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are but a mere breath, a chasing after the wind. And so it's best for us to learn early and to learn young and to remember often that we need to give up any attempt to try and control and manage our own destinies in life and simply learn to live each moment before the God who created us and knows us better than we know ourselves. All these human activities will be included. That's all part of the life that God has given us. But they are all to be undertaken under reverence for the God who made us and with no illusions about the nature of life in this world and what we can hope to get out of it. You see, that in and of itself is the, the wrong path. That's what gets us off track to begin with. The pursuit of gain, of profit, of something for me. 
We can actually begin to find joy in living, whether it's in work or rest or in wealth or in wisdom or anything that we pursue because we have learned that life cannot be grabbed or taken. It can only be received as a gift. And if you understand the language of life as a gift, you know that this prepares us to understand the good news message of Jesus Christ. Who asked the very same question of Kohelet, if you remember, in Mark 8.36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Jesus had the same question about what do you get out of life? And how's it working for you right now? You see, true life, genuine life, life the way God designed and intended it for you and for me under the sun, Jesus finally reveals and confirms for us, comes solely as the free gift of God who created us and loves us and invites us to receive life from Him. We can spend our time as we go through Ecclesiastes watching the world around us. We're surrounded by people who are living for all that the world has to offer, for everything that they can get out of it. And yet all the time what we find is when we get to the end of the path that we're pursuing is that it's empty. There's nothing there. All of the the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we were hoping to get, it doesn't last. You just have to go back on a new pursuit to find something different or something more. Are the rich people that you know happy? Are the famous people in our culture content? How often do you watch the news? <laughs> when the game is over and everything goes back in the box, what will have been gained from all of the, play, the games that we've played? And so over the next few weeks, I want to invite you to be prayerfully reading through chapters 1 through 3 in Ecclesiastes. We're going to try and work our way through that in the next four weeks. You can read through it, and and if you're willing, if you're a writer, you can journal. Just journal your thoughts that you have around life as as God is speaking to you through these first three chapters. There's also some great version reading plans. You can do that alone. You can read on your phone or on your tablet or on your computer, and you can even invite friends to do that with you. And there's sometimes some devotional ideas and thoughts. And then later this week, we'll be putting out some group questions and some devotional tools and resources for you as well, so you can be watching for those. But my invitation for us today and for you is to join together and in let Kohelet, through this book, expose to us the world we live in in a more true and an honest way than maybe we've been willing to acknowledge so that we can see it as it is in all of its beauty and its majesty, but also in all of its futility and its fleeting nature and its breathiness in our own lives. And along the way, I believe we'll also find some practical help, some insights for how we can find true fulfillment and true joy in the the everyday experiences of life that God invites us to see as a gift. Life, men and women, is not something to be taken. It is something we are simply invited to receive. Would you pray with me? God, as we enter into this new study, we ask that you would use the words of Ecclesiastes to challenge us, 
to help us to see our own lives in some new ways, to help us to understand that we don't have to get all caught up in the pursuit of life in order to try and find happiness. But that through your son, Jesus, you have already revealed that you are offering us the gift of life as something we simply need to receive. And so give us the courage to enter into this new way of living, to see your presence and your power at work in our lives, and to understand the goodness that comes from not only resting in you, but from truly enjoying the life that you've given us, just as it is, as a genuine gift from you. And we will thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.